Is capitalism sustainable? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Mike Munger. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Mike Munger. Mike is an economist and a professor of political science at Duke University. He has taught at Dartmouth College, University of Texas, and University of North Carolina. His primary research focus is on the functioning of markets, regulation, and government institutions. Mike has also lectured numerous times for the ILS. He has been published in numerous journals and is the author of many books, including his newest one released in 2019, Is Capitalism Sustainable? Mike, welcome to The Curious Task. It's great to be on the show. Thank you, Alex. And it's great to have you. So in each episode, we start with a question and go wherever the conversation takes us. The title of your book has given us our question conveniently, so let's jump right in. Is capitalism sustainable? No. And that's the end of the episode. <laughs> Thanks for coming. <laughs> great. Um, Shortest one yet. Um, the the, the problem is, I think people have different conceptions of what capitalism is. Mm. And so let me briefly say what I think is the best argument for capitalism. Great. Capitalism is a combination of two things. One is the use of markets for allocation. The second is some kind of shared ownership, usually based on stock and corporations, to raise the amount of capital necessary to produce things that people want. So if you have those two things together, a capitalist system of stock ownership where we sell shares to raise capital in order to get liquidity, and we have a market system that gives price signals about the relative scarcity of resources, those two things together constitute capitalism. Now, the argument for capitalism, in my mind, was given by Adam Smith, but primarily it was given in his first book, published in 1759, which was The Theory of Moral Sentiments. So the, the sources, according to Smith, of moral sentiments are four. The first is the sense that we have when we, some, we, when we see someone else act. What we're trying to do is judge their intent. That is, do they mean to do good? And we tend to judge them well if they mean to do good. The second source of moral sentiments is the effect or the reaction of the person being acted on. So, for example, suppose we live out in the country and your barn is falling down. I, your next door neighbor, I come over with some tools and I say, look, I'm going to help fix up your barn. Well, my intent is to do you good. But you actually like the barn the way that it is. And I have a different blueprint. I'm going to build a different kind of barn from the one that you like. That's not really very helpful. That's the sort of help that we might associate with somebody who's a busybody or a nanny, you know, that, that it's not really helping us. The third source of moral sentiment is propriety, the sense that we have that something is right or wrong, and it's almost cultural. So, for example, suppose that you are a criminal, you have stolen some money, you come before me, and I'm a judge. As the judge, I say, you know, you've had a really hard time. I think I'm just going to let you go. Well, my intent is to help you. You're sure grateful. That's great. Thank you, judge. But it means that some people who steal money get sent to jail and others get let off for free. It violates our sense of justice because it's treating equivalent cases differently. And that violates our sense of justice. So Smith thought that those first three sources of moral sentiments 
we're the way that we mostly deal with each other in a society, particularly one that isn't changing much. But then he adds the fourth, and it kind of throws it all wide open. The system needs to operate like a well-contrived machine that produces prosperity in what Smith called opulence. Hmm. So Smith's definition of wealth was stuff. It's not money. It's not the Midas fallacy. It's stuff. It's a car. It's a cell phone. It's a microwave. It's a refrigerator. So all the things that make our lives better. And, you know, maybe you're not, you don't want to be obsessed with consumerism, but all the things that make your lives better. So Smith recognized there was a conflict between the fourth and the first three. And you can sort of see where I'm going to go with this. The well-contrived system that Smith had in mind was so important, but so difficult to explain that he went off and wrote another book called Wealth of Nations, where he defined wealth as being stuff that we have. And he gave a definition of what is required to produce increased wealth. And it's in the first three chapters of book one of Wealth of Nations. And it's called Division of Labor. Division of Labor means that I specialize in something, you specialize in something else, and we're dependent on each other actually providing the stuff that we need. So it's a very cooperative system. Now, it could be cooperative based on source one of moral sentiments, my intent to do good. But I'm probably only really going to want to do good for the people that I actually know, my family, maybe a few members of my community, maybe a few other people who root for my favorite baseball team, which is the St. Louis Cardinals. You know, we all have some connections, but those are limited. For the system to work like a well-contrived machine, we need something that operates at a scale that's beyond just personal intent. So the reason that Smith wrote Wealth of Nations was actually stated in the chapter title of chapter three of book one of the Wealth of Nations. That title is that the division of labor is limited by the extent of the market. That the division of labor is limited by the extent of the market. And economists think of this as a nonlinear return. It's increasing returns to scale. If you have four people who all provide everything they need for themselves, you don't have much stuff. If you have four people who specialize, one makes shoes, one makes food, one makes clothing, and one makes music, well, we're all better off because specialization has returns to it. But suppose all four of us specialize in making shoes. We can make way more than four times as many shoes. We can make 20 or 100 times as many shoes by specializing and then using division of labor. The problem now is all we've got is shoes. We're going to have to trade shoes with people we don't already know. So we can't operate on good intent. We need another system. And that system is the market system. The market system is a way of organizing decentralized division of labor. That's what causes the increase in wealth. So if you have a system that's based on voluntary exchange and mutual aid, organized in a decentralized system called markets, and you have a system called capitalism that allows you to raise money in order to finance the capital that fosters that division of labor, you get enormous increases in wealth. In fact, we've seen since Adam Smith's time until now, the decline in poverty in any sort of absolute conception of poverty means that the world is a much more prosperous, opulent place. Just between 1960 and 2020 alone in China, the poverty rate has fallen from 80% to about 10%. So Deirdre McCloskey and other economists have written about the fact that 
This is the greatest enrichment that the world has ever known, and it's a result of capitalism. So that's the, the argument for capitalism is we still need those first three things. We care about our intent for each other. We care about taking care of each other. We care about the reaction of other people. That is, if I make something and you don't want it, I haven't done you any good. I have to make something that you want to buy. I have to take into account your reaction. And we have to take into account propriety. Is this something that's legal? Is transacting in this something that we accept? But then we have to recognize that there's something that operates at a scale beyond what can be taken care of just by personal exchange, and that's markets and capitalism. So it's interesting. Smith wrote Theory of Moral Sentiments in 1759. He then took off 20 years to go work on the wealth of nations. And then when he finished that, it's like a parenthesis. When he finished that, he then went back and spent the rest of his life working and reworking Theory of Moral Sentiments. He released a new edition of Theory of Moral Sentiments in 1790. So clearly, there are not two Adam Smiths. There's one Adam Smith. But he's concerned about all four sources of moral sentiments. And he was worried that people don't just naturally understand how we are benefiting each other by acting in our own self-interest in a market setting. That, that's a great way to kick it off. And everyone listening should know that Mike basically blasted through the first, I would say, eighth of the notes I had here exactly the way I wanted it to go. So that's awesome, Mike. Um, and, uh, and and basically where I arrived at here is, is uh, in, in, I want to drill down a little further into the three core principles of capitalism uh, after you would give your definition of what capitalism is. And of course, you touched on the division of labor and quickly sped over uh, one of the core principles you outlined at the beginning of your book, which is impersonal exchange based on prices. So let's spend a little bit more time on that one. You and I can exchange, maybe because we know each other. Right. Um, one of the one of the key problems in a market system is trust. And when you think about it, some of the stuff that I need to buy is kind of sketchy. I need food, so if I just see you on the street and you say, "Here's a sandwich," and I buy that, well, can I put that in my mouth? Can I put that in my children's mouth? Is it really safe? Now, it might be if I know you, you're a member of my family. It might be if we have repeat business and I've been buying sandwiches from you for years. But in the absence of that, how can Smith's well-contrived machine create a system where trust is provided internal to the system? And economists call this problem the problem of asymmetric information um, George Ackerlaw famously wrote a paper about the market for lemons, by which he meant used cars. Because buying a used car always has this problem. I don't know if it's a good car or not, and that means that I won't pay more than the value of the car if it actually has engine problems. But you know it's a good car. How can you and I negotiate around the fact that you have more information than I have? Well, Ackerlaw concluded that probably it required government interve intervention. But in the United States, at least, I I'm interested if it operates in Canada, there's a company called CarMax. And CarMax is a used car company, and they do two things. One, they have a reputation, which means that they're not just a car lot where I can go and they won't be there next week. Right. Their reputation actually depends. A reputation, a brand name, is like having the, that person's grandmother tied up in your basement. <laughs> so you you kidnap their grandmother, you tie her up, you put her in the basement, and then you drive the car. And if the car sucks, you say, sorry, grandma gets it. 
Well, okay, that's a little exaggerated, but the, the brand name, I, they're, they're losing value. It's a hostage. Right. But the other thing that CarMax does is they offer a thing called a warranty. And the warranty transfers the risk of the car not working from you, the buyer, the person who doesn't know anything about the car, to me, the seller, the one who has intimate knowledge of the car. So a warranty and a brand name solve the problem of asymmetric information. So I can go into Walmart, and let's suppose this will show my age. I realize these things don't exist anymore. But there used to be a really cool thing that you would play DVDs on. So I would go into Walmart, and I'm going to get a DVD player. And there's a box, and they cost 90 bucks. and I pull the box off the shelf. Now, that box came from China, and it hasn't been opened. But I don't open it to look and see if there's a, a DVD player. I don't plug it in to see if it works. So I go to the counter and I give a person that I don't know and will never see again a piece of plastic that has financial information on it, which, if widely shared, might harm me. But I think nothing about giving her my credit card. She runs it through the system and I walk out with that box. I didn't actually pay for it. All that happened was I they made a magnetic record of a number that is stored on my credit card. So none of us know each other. The people in China made this without knowing who I am. I'd like to think they love me, but they probably don't. They probably just not. wanted to make some money from selling a DVD player. Right. So the, there's, there's, there's no personalistic aspect of any of the stages of that. And the result is that it substantially reduces the transactions cost of expanding division of labor. And remember, division of labor is limited by the extent of the market. If we have ways of increasing the set of people we can cooperate with by not requiring direct per personalistic knowledge of each other, then we become wealthier. So we touched on divisional labor, the impersonal exchange based on prices. Now let's talk a bit more about the growth based on economies of scale. I want to make sure we get these three core principles established before we drive even further. So why don't you finish off the set there with us and maybe even tie it back to the sustainability aspect as it probably nicely will. Increasing returns to scale is something that economists have a lot of trouble with. And part of the reason is a lot of the time economists are concerned about equilibrium, particularly when we study macroeconomics we're worried about the existence of general equilibrium. And one of the conditions for the existence of general equilibrium is that there cannot be substantial increasing returns to scale. But Adam Smith recognized, and a number of Austrian economists have talked about the, fa the fact, the very reason that we have markets in the first place is that increasing returns to scale upset the status quo. So if I devote twice as much labor to making a product, I get 10 or 20 or 30 times as much stuff. That means that, I give an example in the book, there, there's three counties in northern Alabama in the United States, and it used to be that they made nearly half of all the socks, what you put on your feet, they made nearly half of all the socks made in the world. And the reason is there was a bunch of machinery there that resulted in division of labor. So it used to be that socks and hosiery were made in England. Then they were made in New England, in Massachusetts. Then they were made in North Carolina. And then they were made in Northern Alabama. Now, those counties produced almost nothing but socks. Everything else had to be imported. So food would, would be imported. They would get wheat. They would get potatoes. They would get meat. They would get stuff from China and Japan that was brought in. So the Walmart there, you could buy toys that were made in another country. 
But all the other countries in the world bought all their socks from these three counties in northern Alabama. And the reason is that if you really specialize in division of labor, you can produce enough for the entire world. Division of labor wants to be global because it's increasing returns to scale. So instead of having a factory in China, a factory in Germany, a factory in the United States, you just have one large collection of factories and they can make enough for the whole world. Well, the three counties in northern Alabama no longer produce any socks. Now there's a city in China, Datang, people called Sock City, where two-thirds of all the socks in the world are made. And the result is, if you go to Walmart now, you could get a pair of socks for less than a dollar. That's an enormous benefit if you're poor. Right. You can go to some store and you can get products from somebody you, you don't know and who actually doesn't care about you. They're just trying to make a profit. Now, the question is, if these are just greedy people, why don't they charge more? If they're so greedy, why don't they charge more? And the answer is, it's in their self-interest to charge less. That's what allows them to have worldwide scale. So division of labor wants to be global because of increasing returns to scale. The difficulty with that is that it means that we have really cheap consumer products all over the world. But a lot of people who used to have jobs making socks in Alabama, in Massachusetts, and in England now have to find a job doing something else. So uh, Joseph Schumpeter called this creative destruction. So the real answer to your question about the, the economies of scale, the problem with economies of scale is it produces wealth, but it's also corrosive to the cultural institutions that we've come to depend on. Because the village that we might live on no longer can really survive because the sock factory closed. So it means that societies have to be dynamic and adaptive, but there's a constant increase in wealth. And so that does, as you said, that does sort of hint about one of the problems about whether capitalism is really sustainable, because it begins to raise questions about the environment. Are we using up too many resources to produce consumer products? And it raises questions about political viability, because the people who used to have jobs making socks, yeah, it's nice they can buy cheap socks, but they have no income. The unemployment rate in those counties is 30 or 40 percent. So one of the one of the problems of the viability of capitalism is that it creates a destructive cycle where we're constantly making more and better products. It is ruled by consumers, not by labor, not by workers. And many of our political concerns are about workers. So there's a mismatch. Economics and capitalism serves consumers. It's called consumer sovereignty. But Politics is often concerned about workers, working, working conditions, and distribution. So the question is, are, is democratic politics and economic capitalism, are those things consistent? Because they seem to be in conflict. Right. And actually, that, that leads very nicely into something that you were basically segueing into anyway, which is in your book, you talk about uh, that the fragility of capitalism essentially rests on two things. One you already brought up, which was you said government can hammer the expectations of investors and entrepreneurs and also consumers, of course. Uh, so we just talked about that real quick. But then you also added another one. You said that the the business community can seek, quote, help from the state. And that's another threat to the capitalist system. And I think I like that you put in the book help in quotes, because that is too nice of a word for what the business community can, in fact, do uh, when they're not acting in the interests of what 
would end up being the uh, the capitalist system working smoothly. So maybe we get a bit more into that one. Of course, we can go back to the government as well, but I figured let's just segue right into the, the business community one first. I slipped in before the question, why doesn't the company that makes socks, why don't they charge more? Mm. And I said it was in their their interest to charge less. Well, actually, it would be in their interest to charge more if they can find a way to do that. Right. And one of the forms that help from the government might take is a regulation that prevents competition. So if you're a company and you think of competition as being destructive, you're probably right. Because you and I are fighting over the same customer base. We're trying to make socks cheaper and cheaper. What we could do instead is you and I could come to an agreement that we will not charge less than a certain price and we'll divide the existing market so we both make profits. Now, that's illegal. It violates antitrust laws. But it might very well be that we could go to the government and say, this destructive competition is harming jobs. And in the United States right now, a lot of this is going on. We need to keep these jobs home in the United States. We should have American products for American consumers. And so let's, we, you and I won't have an agreement. We'll compete. But what we will do is we'll have a law that says no foreign socks can be brought into the United States. Right, we can at least agree on that. Yes. Or there, you and I can definitely agree that we don't want no stinking Chinese right. socks there. Exactly. And then, you know, we can sort of compete, but it'll be at a much higher price. Mm-hmm. And so it's very tempting. Well, let me put it this way. One of the biggest enemies of free and open markets is the business community. Mm-hmm. It's perfectly understandable because competition is destructive. That The reason that Schumpeter called it creative destruction was that it's really difficult to operate a business under those circumstances. And if you are a corporate CEO, you have a bunch of workers in my district. Um, let's suppose that I'm a member of the U.S. Congress or the Canadian Parliament. And so what I do is say, I'm going to offer you protection from foreign products. And that means that we're going to keep American or Canadian jobs at home. So we'll have products that are made domestically. That really does kind of help the business. (coughs) The reason that it's a problem is that I now as a corporate CEO, I have a choice between two kinds of investment. I can invest in new plant and equipment and try to make more and better stuff. Or I can invest in lobbyists and lawyers and use those to talk to people in government, talk to bureaucrats, and make the case that I need help. Well, it's not obvious that investment in new plant and equipment and engineers is always going to be more profitable than investing, and I'm making those same quote marks, than investing in help from the government. And in a way, you cannot blame the corporate CEO. The corporate CEO's job is to make money for stockholders. Right. And if I can make more money by investing in help from the government, getting subsidies, getting trade protection, I'd have to be crazy not to do that. Now, it's true that it harms consumers, but my pursuit of profits as a corporate CEO might very well lead me to say, we're going to invest in help from the government. And then once that happens, a lot of the argument for capitalism breaks down and it becomes what's called cronyism or crony capitalism. Right. And I think that's very important to get into because I think a lot of people 
when they hear the word capitalism, like many other words, has become meaningless depending on who you're talking to and what conversation we're having. But in this conversation, I just want to be clear, you are definitely not talking about for instance, the arrangement that the United States has right now, where we see all the lobbying and the corporate cronyism, that's not what you mean by when you talk about capitalism in the sense we are discussing today. Right. And that was the reason why we went through that long argument at the beginning about Adam Smith's four sources of moral sentiments. Right. It is important that people recognize that the price system and the capitalist system is beneficial. However, it is understandable. And part of the reason that I wrote this book is that I actually kind of changed my mind. It used to be that, well, let me put it this way. Um, I, I teach at Duke University. I have quite a few friends that I think it's fair to say are on the political left. And so when they'll talk about what well, we think socialism is great, I'll say socialism is not great. Look at Venezuela. Look what's happening in Venezuela. And they'll say, oh, that's not real socialism. And I'll laugh and say, but that's what socialism becomes. State ownership and control of the means of production is always going to result in a decline in the standard of living and the loss of liberty. So they were making a distinction between real socialism and socialism as it has happened in Venezuela. So I thought, well, that's just wrong. They don't understand. Socialism always goes in that direction. And then I realized that I was committing the sin that I decry in others. Right. Because when someone says, well, look at Solyndra, look at this company that went bankrupt after taking all of the subsidies, look at U.S. Steel, which has gotten protection from foreign steel, look at all of the large corporations that are using the Trump administration to increase their profits. What do I say? Oh, well, that's not capitalism. That's crony capitalism. Well, but wait, if that's what capitalism becomes in a democratic system like the United States, that means that what I say I want, real capitalism, doesn't actually exist. And once you start thinking in those terms, it's hard to find a place on earth that it does. So the, a good challenge from my leftist friends would be to say, all right, you tell me, look at a map, here's a globe, you point to the place on earth that has real capitalism of the sense you're talking about. And I guess I would say Singapore comes pretty close. In some ways, parts of Estonia come pretty close. There's a few countries, they're not very big. And those countries seem to have something very close to capitalism. They're not democracies. So that raises a really difficult question. Is capitalism just inconsistent with democracy? Or to put it another way, in a democracy, is there a tendency for capitalist systems to devolve into cronyism? Before we leave this point and before we do get to the break, I want to switch back over to what we were talking about, the other uh, area of the fragility of capitalism rests on, which is the government hammering the expectations of investors and entrepreneurs. We just talked about how the government or the state can be involved with giving special privileges to businesses, for instance. But what's the other way that the government can make this whole idea fragile that we're talking about today? I'm pretty unpopular with almost everyone because my <laughs> argument about socialism and then that that's what Venezuela becomes. My friends on the left don't like me, but then some my some of my pro market friends say, "Well, you're just you're missing the role of the state here." It's actually not that people capitalists, corporate CEOs, it's not that they're going to the government asking for help. What's really happening is that the government comes into your factory and looks around and says, hey, this is a nice factory you got here. It would be a shame like something was to happen to it, you know, like a fire or maybe an audit. 
Who knows how <laughs> these things get started? It'd be a shame is all I'm saying. We can protect you. With just a little bit of money, we can offer you protection from these sorts of unfortunate occurrences. Right. Well, obviously, I'm doing a very bad Italian gangster accent there. But the, the, the claim is that the government actually is playing a much more active role in running a kind of protection racket here. And so in order, it's not so much that the, the companies are buying favorable treatment. They're being forced to pay to avoid unfavorable treatment. But that means that we're almost back in the Hobbesian problem since the state can take investment, can, since the state can confiscate wealth. That means that I'm less likely to invest in the long term. So one of the things that people are concerned about is that corporations seem to have a pretty short time horizon. They're only concerned about the next few stock returns. Well, that might be because government is constantly experimenting with new systems of property rights and new systems of regulation, which make long-term investments less profitable. I'm less certain that this long-term investment is going to pay off. And so I get diverted to more short-term. And it may be the result of uncertainty. People call it regulatory uncertainty. I'm uncertain what the state is going to do. That results in, well, the claim that I want to make is it doesn't matter as much as my pro-market friends would like to think. They mm. seem to think they've defended capitalism. Okay, fair enough. I have a friend, John Allison, who was the head of BB&T, a large bank in the southeast part of the United States. When the to toxic asset relief program money was being given out in 2007 and 2008, uh, representative from the Treasury Department came to visit John Allison. And their bank had not gone long in a lot of these commoditized debt obligations, the securities that were based on mortgages. So BB&T didn't have many of those in their portfolio. And as a result, they weren't in trouble. They were okay. The guy from the Treasury Department basically did the Italian gangster routine that I just, did, just said and said, you know, I think it would really be in your interest for you to accept some toxic asset relief program funds. <laughs> because otherwise, there may very well be an audit. The point was, the government wanted to sell the case that all of the banks had acted badly and that the state was obliged to bail them out. In fact, the truth was that the banks had, some banks had acted badly, some had acted well, and the state decided not to let the ones that had acted badly go bankrupt because they were too big. Right. In fairness, that was probably right. So this way they could say, no, no, we had to bail out all of the banks. The whole financial system was ruined. Only the state was able to prevent a financial meltdown. So it is true that the state does sometimes play the more active role, but ultimately it doesn't matter. It's, capitalism is still not sustainable in a democracy. If we want to talk about who's to blame, I think the blame is shared. But it's still true that if the state finds it, if state actors find it in their self-interest to make sure that corporate CEOs buy favorable policy or pay to avoid unfavorable policy, ultimately it still means that capitalism is not sustainable. And I think that's an excellent place to take a break. So we're going to do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task, and I'm talking with Mike Munger.
The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send us questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Travis Smith, Vincent Geloso, and Andy Crooks. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Mike Munger. Before the break, Mike, we were talking about the sustainability of capitalism, and you sort of started bringing up the question about whether or not capitalism, as we talk about in theory, is sustainable when it's put up against the forces of democracy and what most modern Western governments run on, quite frankly. I want to tie off that thought then. So people who are, let's call them free marketeers, people that see themselves as proponents of the market, in your view, what's the correct way to look at this whole thing then? We've obviously covered that it'd be silly for someone to blindly always, uh, you know, be an advocate for markets and try to say, oh, no, 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 that's not real capitalism. So we have capitalism. We have democracy. These are facts of life. Is it just trying to keep a happy balance or happy medium? How should people be thinking of this if it, in your mind, isn't sustainable in the long run? Well, the first time I really worked much on this was a paper with Mario Villarreal, who is now at the University of Texas. And it was an article in the Independent Review. And the title of the article was called The Road to Crony Capitalism. Hmm. And we were modeling this after Friedrich Hayek's 1944 book, The Road to Serfdom. And people mischaracterize Hayek's book. Hayek did not say if there's any hint of central planning or price management, that country is necessarily going to become socialist. What he tried to do was identify a tendency that if you start to manage prices, it means you have to manage others. If you start to worry about incomes, then you need more regulations to control the bad effects, the distorting effects of that. Well, that's really where we were going is not to say where Mario and I were going. It's not to say that capitalism always becomes cronyism. Mm. But there is a tendency that we have to be aware of. And public choice, which is the branch of political science in which I work, famously has a particular requirement. Now, it used to be that people, when they advocated for socialism, the response might be the United States Constitution has separation of powers. And that makes the government sort of clunky and inefficient. But the reason is that we feel like you can't trust anyone to have too much concentrated power. And I have to admit, as an aside, a lot of my leftist friends have been much more interested in this view since Donald Trump became president, because they are worried about the concentration of power. I I had one of my friends came in and shut the door and said... I was reading the Federalist Papers, and those things are interesting. (laughs) Well, yes, they are, because they're based on the premise that we can't rely on good people. So the the premise of public choice is you can't assume good people. What you have to have is rules that control even bad people. And the advantage of markets is that it assumes that people are going to pursue their self-interest, and it tries to make the pursuit of self-interest consistent with the common good. So Adam Smith says we don't depend on the love or the beneficence of the butcher or the baker for our dinner. We depend on their self-interest. And so as a result, we get better food. But it's because they want to make money. Well, the question is, does the government, can the government also operate in that way? 
what I've seen is that some public choice people will say, what we need is better elected officials. We need elected officials who recognize how important capitalism is. Well, wait, if we can't assume, if they can't assume good people, then we can't assume good people. Right. That means that we, public choice says that we assume people in the government are going to operate on their own self-interest. If it is in the self-interest of people who work for the regulatory authority or people elected to the Congress or Parliament, if it's in their self-interest to manipulate policy, to create artificial wealth, or to create what economists call rent-seeking, then that's a pretty difficult thing to overcome because we can't assume good people. The one thing we cannot assume is good people. But wait, what about voters? And I think that's the answer. So the source of hope here is to get voters to recognize these policies will enrich the crony capitalists right. on Wall Street. These policies will enrich the politicians who find it into their benefit. But it's harmful to voters. And so I think it's possible for, and we've seen this a couple times in American history, where a, a president or a political leader makes this argument, and there's enough voters that recognize the truth of the claim to say, yes, we're going to change things. So that was a long answer to your question. Let me summarize. I think there's a tendency towards cronyism, but it's not necessarily true. And this is harmful enough. The, the, the costs to consumers are so large and so obvious that it may be that voters can solve this problem. So one of the reasons that I like doing podcasts like this, one of the reasons that I wrote the book was to try to influence voters and people who are everyday citizens who are thoughtful about these matters, because I think we have a chance to, to change this back. It's only a tendency. It's not inevitable that the market system gives way to cronyism. So for the in the meantime, what, for whatever the flaws of democratic institutions and the democratic process is, you're definitely of the view that it's there and we have to work within it. We do have to convince other people of the benefits of the market and, and less government at times. We can't do what a lot of people, quite frankly, do, which is just continually preach how great capitalism is and a world without the state might be. We actually have to work within this system. Sure, but there's a bunch of people on our side that are just fiercely optimistic about this. And let me give way to my own optimism. Okay. My book before um, Is Capitalism Sustainable was called Tomorrow 3.0. And in that book, I talked about the sharing economy and improvements in technology that in some way make government irrelevant. Right. So uh, Bitcoin, blockchain apps, the ability to write contracts that we don't need enforcement for because we can write smart contracts, our ability to keep records outside of the government's monopoly ability to keep records on maybe on deeds or exchanges, and the fact that we don't have to have trust or regulation in order to be able to share things like cars and apartments. Creative destruction is a very powerful force. Mm -hmm. And so these new technologies, it's true that maybe older businesses like the production of steel, that's gone crony. I think there's a life cycle. For a long time, Microsoft, the large software producer in the United States, they didn't have any lobbyists. But then they were the subject of an antitrust suit in the United States and in Europe. And now Microsoft has an entire building of lobbyists on K Street in Washington. Right. Well, there's a process of maturity, but new industries, and we're getting hundreds of new industries. New industries, at first, they're always competing with each other. 
So some of the vitality of the capitalist system can derive just from the fact that constantly bubbling up is this decentralized creativity of entrepreneurs and people who can think of new ways to do things. And for a while, they're better off trying to make things better than they are trying to get help from the government. So, so long as there's, I, I wrote a piece about this, and I was also there's a chapter in the book about permissionless innovation. So long as you don't need someone's permission to have innovations, capitalism is probably in pretty good hands. It won't become fully cronious because having to seek permission is always inefficient. So the government is constantly trying to catch up. So if we have permissionless innovation, maybe this tendency towards cronyism can be controlled or at least limited to the older industries. And one thing I really like that you did there was distinguish sort of when it comes to the business world, the new school and the old school. And, and one of the things that many people notice if they keep an eye on the business world, at least I find, is that when you have the old establishment businesses, let's call them, and there's new entrepreneurs coming to the market, maybe new ways to do things, they've invented a new app whatever the case may be, two people can get on the same page. And we were talking about these two people, uh, figuratively speaking, the first half. They can get on the same page about not really wanting those new businesses like Uber or something like that, let's say. Often the government can for a variety of reasons and also the old establishment businesses can. There's, And this is where, unfortunately, their interests line up. Usually you'll see the older businesses say, well, we can help you write the legislation that regulates these new businesses. Yeah. We're the establishment. We're safe. And the government, for all the reasons we're talking about before is, is more than happy to regulate these new businesses. We've seen it with Uber. We see it in the attempt to regulate things like VPNs and blockchains. And there's all a discussion right now about regulating the internet, however they're going to figure out how to do that. So the same dangers we talked about in the first half also apply to the entrepreneurs. Yes, they do. And the, there's a sort of naive faith that pro-market people have about the constant source of new innovations. Right. But everybody that until now has said, okay, that's it, no more innovations, they look pretty stupid within a couple of years. So the famously in the 19th century, the, the patent, the head of the U.S. Patent Office said, okay, we're done. Everything that's been invented can be. <laughs> well, that really wasn't true in 1890. The 1950s and 1960s, even computer manufacturers said, you know, I, I can't imagine like computers in every house. What would they use it for? Yeah. Well, the fact that you can't imagine it doesn't mean it won't happen. And so one of the things that I found that's a difference between a professor and an entrepreneur is about five years. <laughs> Everything that I can think of, some, some entrepreneurs started working on five years ago. And so the, the, it is true that regulators and people in government can't imagine, all right, what's going to happen next that's going to be the next source of uh, innovation, the next source of prosperity. Um, I think as long as we can keep unfettered the kind of creative forces of human ingenuity, then we're, we're, we'll probably be okay. But that's an optimistic view. And by definition, it means I don't know where the next benefits are going to come from. I'm just hoping that being a professor, some entrepreneur has been working on it for five years. But ultimately, you view those forces and entrepreneurship as a balancing factor against the establishment business community. It's unstoppable. It's unstoppable. It, it's unstoppable. And it always has been. And the fact that so, so the, the kind of flip side of everything that I've been saying is the reduction in transactions cost. Much of my Tomorrow 3.0 book was about reductions in transactions cost. 
So you could have somebody who lives in Somalia and somebody who lives in Tibet, in Tibet, be able to communicate and cooperate on a kind of programming project and then put that app that they make up for sale on Google Play and bring together all sorts of other people who haven't met each other. So our ability to work in groups has never been better. Right. Our ability to create new communities of meaning. The people talk about the fact, you know, we don't go to clubs anymore. We don't have groups. One of my sons who on, um, I believe it was RuneScape, he had level 60 armor. He had this really special kind of armor. He had a bunch of fanboys in South Korea who thought he was just awesome. <laughs> so he would get online and talk to them about, you know, where'd you get that armor? Would you, would you want to sell it? So there's all sorts of human beings are good at creating new communities and new ways of finding meaning. So yes, it's true that the way we used to have groups where we would go to a bar and drink, we still do that. Or we can go to uh, maybe a club or the, we, we all go to work and we, we talk about, about things after work. That's fine. Less and less of that is happening. It doesn't mean that's the end of the world. We'll find new ways of creating communities of meaning, which in some ways will be better. And I mean, yeah, sure. In, in some ways, there are some people, we can all probably think of one person that what they actually literally do on their phone every day is scroll through news or Facebook and, you know, they don't communicate with anyone. But most people, when they're looking down or doing something on their phone, a lot of that time is preoccupied with texting someone or being in a Facebook group and talking about something that they are particularly interested in. I have tons of friends in software and what they do if they run into a problem now is not necessarily talk to the person the desk next to them they can put it online and people around the world can help them deal with a problem so you're you're 100 right that it's changed it's not gone division of labor is limited by the extent of the market and our ability to solve problems is limited by the size of the cooperation horizon right so the the fact that i can immediately get expertise from someone that i don't know this is a complicated problem i need someone who's an expert on this and within five minutes, someone who is an expert on that will self-identify and say, well, here's what you might want to do. And a lot of times they're not getting paid. These communities benefit each other with honor. If you answer a question correctly, it gets upvoted. Right. So other people say, that, that was a great answer. You really do know what you're talking about. Well done. So we can pay with honor. So we're back to Adam Smith's four sources. I was motivated by wanting to help. I'm not getting paid. It does help you. And so it actually benefits you. It, it serves the purpose you wanted. And the, the group honors the fact that we're all participating in this together. So something that Adam Smith wrote in 1759 explains Wikipedia. It explains the, the answers that you might get on a Reddit subgroup on a really complicated question in programming. Adam Smith had that right in 1759. And I think a lot of us just take for granted that every day we can head to our Facebook wall if you have Facebook and say, hey, I'm visiting this city and looking for recommendations to eat. And then 70 answers later, you know, that's, that's quite amazing. And these are for people you actually know. If you don't get any of those answers, you can go and look right. at Yelp. Exactly. And Yelp has a bunch of, I can find out something about a place I don't know. Facebook is interesting because I actually know those people. Yelp is interesting because I don't know them. We're actually outsourcing trust. Right. And so on, along both dimensions, I can get help from my friends. Mm -hmm. 
and the, the, you know somebody who had gone to a particular city, and I can get help from people I don't know because the information on Yelp is useful. Right. I want to shift gears a bit and talk about again where we go from here. So at the end, t- towards the end of the book, you mention the difference between sort of a directional and destinationist approach to how pe- proponents of free markets should look at the world, and I and I want you to get a bit into that here. I think we can all think of examples of people who ultimately just focus on where things want to end up. But I think there's a lot to be said for the directional approach as well. So why don't you talk about how you view those two approaches and why one's better than the other? Well, I'm not so sure one is better than the other. I think we need to recognize that in different contexts, we should be aware of what we're trying to accomplish. Mm. So um, I ran for governor of the state of North Carolina in 2008 I didn't do all that well, but one of the things that struck me was the mental models that people have. In some cases, the way they judge a policy is whether it conforms to their ideal notion of what the civilization should look like. It's either exactly what it is that we want or it's it's bad. Other people would say anything that's a marginal improvement from where we are now is a direction that we we should go. So I was struck by this argument. My education plank as governor was I favored school vouchers. And my argument for school vouchers was that it increases competition with the state monopoly. It increases the ability of parents to take responsibility for their children's education. Suppose that you say schools are really important. Well, all right, food is really important. Does that mean that the state should run grocery stores? Well, no, not necessarily. We can have food stamps and programs to subsidize it. For, so for schools, we could have state financing, but not state provision. Well, that's vouchers. So when I would argue for vouchers, a lot of my pro-market friends would say, nope, the government's still involved. That's no mm. good. And I would say, but wait, vouchers are better than what we have now. And they would say, no, unless the state is completely removed in every respect, that's not an acceptable policy. Well, that's a destinationist view. And those people tend to not be very effective politicians because politicians usually are directional. Here's where we are now. Here's a policy that I think is better. It's an improvement over the existing policy. You can get people to participate in that. So the question is, when it comes to regulation, when it comes to cronyism, should we completely deregulate entire industries? I have friends that just would say the only good regulation is complete deregulation. Whereas I would say regulation that maintains antitrust, that says you can't have price fixing, um, that eliminates the ability, that, that enhances innovation, that encourages, those regulations are fine. That's the best we can hope for. So the, the directional perspective is more a way of advocating a kind of compromise with your core values, but it's much more likely to be politically effective. And so I think it's really interesting that I probably go back and forth. Sometimes I'm a destinationist, and I have a view of what we should be trying, and sometimes I'm a directionalist. So, for example, in the uh, Tomorrow 3.0 book, I come out in favor of universal basic income. Mm. Not because I think universal basic income is a perfect policy from a libertarian perspective, but because it's better than the dog's breakfast of welfare programs we have now that trap people in poverty. If you get a job or you get married, you lose your benefits. Right. Well, 
poor people aren't lazy, they're rational. So we need a system that doesn't punish you for getting married, for getting a job, for doing the responsible thing. So I think universal basic income is better than the system we have now. I don't think it's ideal, but I think it's better. So from a directional perspective, I would advocate for UBI. From a destinationist perspective, I would say that the state should not be interfering with the distribution of income. Right. And from the destinationist perspective, here's the thing, unless over 50% of the people or even more uh, share the same destinationist objectives, you're not getting anywhere. And that's back to what you were saying before, right? Is that you can't really many times uh, reconcile some of the destinationist objectives with the reality of the situation, whether anyone likes it or not. Right. And the question is, do you really want to participate in politics or do you want to have an ideology where you can be proud of how pure it is? Right. And all of us are probably some balance between them. I would hope so. I mean, if, if we if, if the goal is to actually have an effect and convince people and, and try and make the world a better place, according to our view, I would hope the mix of both exists, right? I, I, I've certainly met people that don't mix the directional very well. They're, they're mostly concerned about their con, their vision of Libertopia. Right. That That's an excellent point. That is true. So my second last question before I give you the chance to wrap it up is that you said something in the book that, that really stuck with me and I liked it. You said that defending the idea that the market is perfect is ultimately a fool's errand. We've talked a lot about that broadly in this episode, but maybe you can bring it down to a finer point here as well. Like, I, If there's a takeaway about that fool's errand part that you want people to have from this episode and our recording today, why is it a fool's errand to defend that idea of perfection? We, and by we, I mean pro-market people, often get suckered into defending the perfection of markets. And for all sorts of reasons, maybe cronyism, maybe market failure, you can point to examples where markets did things that were not perfect. I think the the, reason, the argument for markets should not be that markets are perfect. The argument for markets is that the world is imperfect, that we don't have information, that we need innovation, we need new products. So here's the way that I summarize it. Um, here at Duke, I have a colleague named Dan Ariely who wrote a book called Predictably Irrational. He's a behavior economist. He's a very famous behavioral economist. And he will often make the argument, people in markets don't have the information or the cognitive ability to solve the problem that we give to them. Therefore, the state should regulate. Well, wait, Dan, every flaw in consumers is worse in voters. Hmm. And I just say that over and over again, every flaw in consumers is worse in voters. The behavioral people say, well, the problem is we overvalue free stuff. Yeah, at the grocery store, we'll stand in line and wait for those little sausages because they're free. Right. But at the voting booth, we'll stand in line and wait for college tuition because it's free. So every flaw in consumers is much worse in voters. So unless you behavioral people are willing to admit that you're fascists and that you want to prevent democracy from working, we have two bad choices. Right. We shouldn't be defending the perfection of markets. We should be attacking the imperfection of democracy. Do you really want Donald Trump in charge of U.S. foreign policy? Because that's where democracy leads you. We have, a, we have a system of voting, and it leads to people you don't like having power you don't want them to have. Markets are better than that. It isn't hard to be better than that. So every flaw in consumers is worth in voters. I'm, 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 I'm thinking of having T-shirts made. Every flaw in consumers is worse in voters. And so the result is, unless you're willing to favor fascism, 
and a government of technocrats that are appointed by a special group of clerics that are beyond the power of democracy to remove. We're stuck with two bad choices. And under many circumstances, markets are the better choice. But for some reason, our side often gets stuck defending market perfection. Oh, look, here, this is efficient. We actually don't have enough information to get efficiency. That's the inside of Austrian economics. The reason profits exist is that the system is not efficient, and right. we've not yet devoted enough resources to this activity. So the, the existence of profits proves that markets are inefficient. That's great because it's a signal, spend more here. This other place, this other company that's making losses, spend less there. But it's not equilibrium. The idea of perfection and equilibrium is misleading. And I'm just amazed that we get suckered into defending it. I think it's because oftentimes for many people, they're just kind of like these quick flashcard answers. You know, someone who you might disagree with is like they're a socialist, let's say, and then they put up an objection to capitalism and people kind of look down their flashcards and go, uh, hold on, equilibrium. Yeah. And they start shuffling the deck around, uh, hold on, limited government. And then they kind of just drop their cards and they spill over the floor and it's embarrassing. All that to say, I agree with you. No, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. I just want them to have, I want them to have a new flashcard. I want them to have one that says every flaw in consumers is worse in voters. That's, that would be a great flashcard. Maybe you just put that at the top of the deck and people could start, stop handing them out willy nilly, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Um, Mike, uh, our time has wound down completely here, uh, but as always on the this podcast, we want to make sure the guest has the final word. So we've talked about a lot. We always like to end the episode by asking our guests to bring it full circle, put a finer point on the exploration of the question. So what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on whether capitalism is sustainable? There is in capitalism, in a democracy, a tendency towards cronyism. But over and over again, we've seen that that tendency can be overcome by people who are committed to a sense of the public good. And so Adam Smith's initial work on the wealth of nations, he was demonstrating how difficult it is and yet how important it is for people to understand why a market system is not just beneficial for the wealthiest. Markets are mostly beneficial to the poor. So Adam Smith's example of the woolen coat is what I would always like to leave with. No matter what else is happening, Adam Smith points out that even by 1776, poor people were wearing winter garments that were of better quality than the wealthy would have had just 100 years earlier. Mm. So I have a smartphone. Poor people in Somalia have a smartphone. I have a car. Many poor people in Durham have an old Toyota Corolla. In some ways, there's less inequality than there has ever been in human history. Being wealthy means you have access to a better car, a better smartphone. But the, the basic stuff that markets have made available that Smith described and predicted in The Wealth of Nations is a sign that we need to keep fighting for capitalism because it's a fight worth winning. And I think that's a great way to end it off here today. Mike, thank you so much for joining me today on The Curious Task. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Alex. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. 
check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.